You're listening to the Formby podcast. In this podcast, we're back at St. Peter's and it's the Heritage Week, 275 years. The talk, Formby in the First World War, 1914 to 1918. It's done by Tony Pawson. So, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the third of our talks in the uh, series that we've got this week on Heritage Week. Um, we've had a history of Formby, we've had um, a medical history of Formby, and this afternoon we're going to hear about Formby in the First World War. Obviously, not on the front line, but uh, affected as everywhere was indeed uh, by the happenings from 14 to 18. So it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Tony Pawson, our speaker. Uh, I've known Tony for some years. He uh, was, before he retired, he was uh, in quality control in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and since he's retired, he will tell you about his interest in uh, World War One and other local topics. So please uh, welcome our speaker this afternoon, Tony Pawson. Well, thank, thank you, Nick, thank you for the introduction. You talked about being on the front line. The World War I wasn't on the front line here, but I tell you, I feel as though I'm in the front line, facing <laughs> here. So, well, good afternoon, anyway. Um, I believe professional speakers refer to this spot immediately after lunch as the graveyard slot, <laughs> which is very appropriate, bearing in mind where we are and just thinking what's outside the, uh, the perimeter of this building. I think the reason it's called this is on the assumption that uh, uh, many of the audience will be uh, asleep or dozing and dead to the world after their lunch. But uh, I'm sure this isn't the case today, and I hope that this talk doesn't, uh, doesn't send you to sleep. I thought when I was preparing it, covering four years in, in a one-hour talk uh, would be quite a challenge. But for those of you that have heard the other talks this week, John Phillips covered 11,000 years in an hour. <laughs> Sally Sheard covered 275 years in an hour. So four years is going to be quite a stroll. Now, I'll give you um, sorry, a background to this... Uh, a background to this talk about life in Formby during World War I. Um, the late Reg York, who some of you I'm sure will, will know of and, and may well have known, uh, was chairman of the Formby, Formby Civic Society, so I get the tongue around that. Um, and in 2014, with all the um, commemorations of the start of World War I, he thought it would be a good idea to have a look at the um, effect of World War I on the everyday life in Formby. And the source of uh, the information, let me just see if I can do this. Uh, so I set up a project team to look at it, and this is the, the, the project team. Uh, <clears throat> and the source of information would be the, uh, the Formby Times, uh, which was published uh, every Saturday during the First World War, and the price was one D, one penny, for those of us that can remember uh, the old pence, actually. Um, and the former times was on microfilm in uh, Crosby Library, and so we were able to look at that um, uh, and included the everyday lives of people in Formby, and that will include parishioners of, uh, of St Peter's. 
the result of the, uh, of the project was uh, this book, a book which we called A Community in Wartime, formed in 1914-18. We had thought about calling it An Everyday Story of Country Folk, being formed in a village, but apparently that's been taken by a long-running radio programme about farmers. So, so it's got, there are copies of this at the back, and they are free. So if you want to uh, take a copy, please do, and I'm sure the church would appreciate any donations, but uh, they, are, they are there. Uh, it's a very good read, not that I'm biased, but I'm uh, one of the authors. <laughs> so this is the name of the team. So um, we'll, we'll press on then, actually, to... Uh, just see if I can work this. Right, um, so th this slide outlines the, the contents of the talk. Now, I don't know, some of you might have a horrible feeling that you've heard this before, because I have given a similar talk a couple of times before. But let me, uh, uh, let me tell you, if you have heard it, I've modified it a little bit since the last time. So uh, you'll be able to spot, hopefully, the, the changes. So this is what we're going to look at. Yeah, um, And hopefully this will give you... a an overview of some of the aspects of, of life during um, informally during World War One. So the first one is, is billeting, and this is probably the first major change to life informally following the declaration of war in August 1914. Uh, in, in November 1914, as you can see up there, the Formby Times reported that some 1,500 soldiers were billeted informally in locations including the Working Men's Club, which of course we now know as Weatherspoons, the lifeboat, uh, in the Jubilee Hall, which we now know as the Guild Hall, in unoccupied houses, and in the golf houses and Victoria Hall buildings. And the officers, though, were quartered in the Grapes Hotel. <laughs> and, and later on, private houses were used, as we'll come on to a bit later, for also billeting. But just remember that a recent census at the time gave Formby's population of 6,000. So, as you can see, you had 1,500 troops being billeted. So, you know, a 25% increase in the population, you can really uh, imagine the effect that that, uh, that, that, that had on life in Formby. Uh, now, where are we? Sorry. Billeting continued during 1915, but it gradually reduced. A lot of the soldiers moved to what was called Sniggery Camp. I think that was also called Thornton Camp, and it obviously is just in Greater Crosby. Um, and by the end of 1915, billeting had been, had been given up in Formby. But a year later, in November 1916, billeting had resumed. But from letters of the Formby in the Formby Times, there appears to be in a bit of a north-south divide in the village based on the willingness of residents to accept soldiers. Now, one letter, again published in the Formby Times, that summarised the situation was from someone who signed themselves as matron. And I'll read it. And it states that smaller houses are having up to nine soldiers billeted, yet several larger houses with a staff of servants and several spare rooms have none. When officers were billeted there, there was an immense demand for them and there were no trouble. Now we'll just listen and see why there were <coughs> no trouble. One pound, one shilling, so that's a guinea for those of us who remember that, a week was paid for each one-bedroom accommodation alone. In addition, they, they were gentlemen and most useful for, not the war effort, but for dances, golf, teas, 
and bridge, etc. And she concluded by saying that houses that previously took offices should be made to take Tommies, of whom, she says, better mannered men never came to this place. And there are other, other letters as well. It wasn't just one embittered person or other letters in the form of times that supported that, that north-south divide. <clears throat> and of course, it was only a matter of time before a counter-attack to this barrage of, of letters came from someone signing themselves as Aldi Alterin Partim, uh, which I'm told translates as listen to the other side or let the other side be heard as well. And I suspect that this individual lived in one of the larger houses in the northern part of the village and may well have been a parishioner of St Peter's. <laughs> to quote him or her, the better classes have largely contributed to direct taxation and given a considerable slice of their income to support the army and navy. One is forced to conclude the whole crusade is only another example of class hatred. So whilst on mainland Europe, World War I was raging, there seemed to be a civil war going on in Formby uh, about the billeting of, of troops. So anyway, what uh, other ways that uh, Formby supported the troops, <laughs> as well as some parts of the village uh, billeting soldiers? Here we go. So again, I just want to touch on four areas, actually, where the support for the troops. Voluntary working parties and groups, recreational facilities, sporting activities and fundraising. Now, the British government declared war on Tuesday, the 4th of August, 1914, and later that month, a public meeting was held at Victoria Hall to discuss the formation of various working parties and groups. And it was agreed that these working parties, understandably, would be co coordinated by one head, and this was a Mrs Florence Storey of Brockhouse on Wrigley's Lane. She was a widow of a wealthy colliery owner, Edgar Storey, and she would be supported by a committee uh, with representatives from the various organisations for these voluntary groups involved, and they obviously were principally the churches. Now, Mrs Storey and her husband, Edgar, are actually buried in uh, St Peter's Churchyard, and that's a picture of, uh, of her cross uh, and the churchyard in, in here. According to the Formby Times, by the end of 1915, there were only two main voluntary working parties. The Congregational Guild for War Service, which appears to be in a development from the Ladies' War Society, now supported by the Congregational Church, and the second group being Mrs. Storey's Working Party. Um, I'm not sure she would be, I'm sure would have been supported by St. Peter's Church. And for most months throughout the war, the Formby Times carried reports on these two groups and the articles and items that they produced. Now, the initial objective of groups, this was in 1914, was to supply garments to the base hospital in Fazakali. However, as the, as the war developed, not only did the range of articles produced expand, so did the destinations to which they were sent. Initially, as I said, it was garments and bandages that were made, and this included socks, shirts, vests, mufflers, ward slippers, helpless night shirts and pneumonia jackets, whatever they exactly were, and bandages of various descriptions were also made and supplied. That included winding bandages, many tailed bandages, hip bandages and slings. So if you were like me and thought of a bandage was a bandage, obviously uh, there's quite a variety of bandages. 
We've got some examples here, actually. Other articles produced included face cloths, hospital bags, hospital parcels which contained stationery, nail brushes, pen holders and pencils, bed tables, boards to go on the knees of card games, wooden screens, what were termed zigzag puzzles, which I think we would know as, are now known as jigsaw puzzles, um, and, and bed rest, uh, uh, splints and bed rests. And in November 1915, it was reported that 180 sandbags made by Mrs. Havelock Sutton's organisation were sent to London. Of course, when you think about it, the raw material for sandbags is readily available on the beaches here at Formby, so no surprise there. As I mentioned earlier, the initial objective was to supply the hospital in Fazakali. But as the war progressed, the items were sent to the Liverpool Civic League, the Red Cross, Netherfield Road Hospital and various regiments at the front. And reports in the Formby Times reference items including bed tables, puzzles, ward slippers and bandages being supplied to the Red Cross Hospital in... Sorry. Uh, oh, articles were made by the Guild of War Service were sent in ambulances that were sent to East Africa and then also there were separate reports about items including bed tables, puzzles uh, being supplied to the Red Cross Hospital in Kilindine in East Africa. So you can see actually that, we're, excuse me, I'll just uh, blow my nose. <clears throat> so the, the items that were made were sent far, far and wide and letters of appreciation and thanks came to both the Guild for War Service and Mrs. Storis' party, and a few quotes from these letters. Bed tables, described as a work of art. Yours are the best-made shirts and socks we have ever had. That doesn't really say much about the, uh, the condition of army-supplied army, uh, <coughs> clothing, does it? Can truly say that seldom have I seen a parcel give so much collective pleasure. It is seldom, too, that we have had such good quality articles this letter also goes on to say a garment in, greatest, in great request at the moment is the helpless nightshirt and those made by the working party are found to be of greatest service in the cases of men badly wounded. So again that, that last extract I think is, is bittersweet in that there was praise for the nightshirts made in Formby but obviously there was also a reminder of the casualties of war and of course in those days of course that was before TV and social media that uh, obviously broadcast the consequences of war, which unfortunately we're all too familiar with from what's going on in Ukraine at the present time. So how many worked in these working parties? Well, reports give figures of between 40 and 60 for the Guild of War Service and a similar number for Mrs. Story's working party. So let's assume an average of 50 members of each. This gives a total of approximately 100. And just remember that that is out of a population of around 6,000. So the equivalent today, with Formby's population being about four times that, would be about 400 people beavering away in voluntary groups. And to me, that just puts the scale of the voluntary effort um, in perspective. Uh, not surprisingly, most of the volunteers were women, and there is, but there is a report of uh, bandages being made by elderly men one who was said to be bad-tempered, but became calmer after making bandages. <laughs> so I'd like to just move on now to recreational facilities. 
So again, we've already mentioned that um, a lot of troops were billeted in November 1914. Uh, when that happened, uh, the Congregational Church schoolroom was placed at the disposal of the troops, providing facilities for, and I'm quoting here, writing, reading, arithmetic wasn't mentioned, so I don't know, where are the three R's, and games and musics for the soldiers at that end of the village. In December 1914, a month later, it was reported that one of the large rooms in the Formby Catholic School was opened as a social hall for the benefit of soldiers. And also in December 1914, the Soldiers' Institute was opened in the Wesleyan School in Elbow Lane. One room was set aside as a writing room and suitable materials provided. And there were entertainments and games and regular music concerts were held for the, for the troops at the Institute, including in some cases spe specific uh, concerts for specific purposes, such as in September 1915 for the troops who were about to depart in the following days, presumably on their way to the front. Uh, and as we've heard, the various working parties, clubs and facilities made available for the troops were mostly attached to, to, to churches, probably via their schools. However, the main one from reports in the Formby Times appears to be in this, the Soldiers' Institute. And the Institute was appreciated by the troops. A letter of appreciation from the men of the 15th King's Regiment includes the quote, we miss going to the Institute on a night and all the kind friends who made the place so like home for many of us. When we left Freshfield, it seemed like leaving home indeed. We are only just beginning to realise how good the inhabitants of Freshfield were in providing for us as they did. So that's quite a compliment to the, uh, the folks of uh, Freshfield and Formby in, in helping provide for the troops. And in April 1916, it was reported that the proximity of a large military camp, which presumably is Alcar, is making Formby very busy, especially in the evenings when the village is crowded with khaki. The Soldiers' Institute being having a new lease of life and has been crowded each evening and another club opened in the, in the School of Our Ladies to help relieve the congestion. And the YMCA is due to open the canteen next week. So again, we can see the, the facilities there uh, opened up to the troops so that they could uh, <coughs> fill in their spare time. Moving on now to sporting activities. Sports between soldiers and locals appear to have been very popular and football matches seem to have been the first to take place. So it's not surprising that football was, uh, was one of the first. What was probably the first match took place in the first week of December 1914 when a team representing our ladies played a soldiers' eleven at the Catholic Young Men's Society ground. Another match was held the following week and, quote, should it be favoured with spectators, the collection will be made and given to the fund for supplying cigarettes to the soldiers at the front. On Boxing Day 1914, there was a match at Wicks Lane between a Formby 11 and a team from the 15th Battalion of the King's Liverpool Regiment. The plan was also to raise many from money from donations for the troops, but, again, to quote the report, there was not a large gate owing to the wretched weather. Something, something's never changed, you know. And players were heavily handicapped, owing to the majority of them playing in ordinary boots. And they found it very difficult to keep on their feet. <laughs> um, I suppose, thinking about it, again, 
maybe for the soldiers it was just a bit of a, they didn't realise at the time, but probably it was a bit of a foretaste of the dreadful conditions that they would uh, experience um, over in the trenches. And you see those pictures of them struggling through the mud, um, but then that's another, another topic. Moving on to 1916, there were reports of, of billiard matches at the Working Men's Club, which I've said is now the Lifeboat, uh, Weatherspoon's pub, one against sergeants of the 20th in Ma Manchester Regiment and the other versus South Wales Borderers. Formby won the first match and lost the second. In July 1916, 26 wounded soldiers from Southport's Grange and Woodlands Hospitals travelled to Freshfield Bowling Club to enjoy a bowling challenge in which the men from each hospital went head-on. <laughs> uh, I hope that didn't result in more casualties. Uh, um, there was something of keen competition amongst the wounded soldiers at the hospitals to be selected for the twice-weekly bowling competitions. So that's an example of um, Formby residents perhaps not actually partaking directly in supporting the troops, but making the facilities or Freshfield Bowling Club available. Uh, in summer 1916, cricket matches against soldiers were reported, and the most unusual cricket match covered by the Formby Times was between 11 ladies and 11 wounded soldiers in August 1916. Now, the usual rules for such a competition were followed. <coughs> a tennis ball was used, and the gentlemen had to bowl and field only with their left hand. Miss Matthews, a nurse, proved to be the outstanding player on their team. Playing in her uniform, she took three wickets and in batting struck out with rare force and very few of her hits were fielded. Of course, she got a bit careless and reckless and was caught. So that's just a, a snapshot of the sort of sporting facilities and, and help that, uh, that Formby and, and uh, Freshfield residents provided. Um, moving on briefly to the, the last topic under this section of fundraising, I've already mentioned about collections at football matches for funds to supply cigarettes, etc. to the troops, um, but understandably there were, there were other fundraising activities. References to these included monies raised by the Holy Trinity choristers and also a surprising source, the Whippet Club. So obviously Formby had a Whippet Club uh, at that time. Reference was also made to St Peter's Girls Friendly Society, which held a sale of work on a chilly evening in January 1915 at the girls' schoolroom in Paradise Lane. So, of course, that now is the church hall. And there's information over there on the, on, the, on the display on the boards around there, a little more about the school there. Members of the society have been busy since October and had created an array of tidy needlework and had collected items for sale at reasonable prices. <clears throat> the Vicar of St Peter's, the Reverend Wright, and his wife opened the event, and brisk sales ensured, ensured that not one article was remaining at closing time. Coverage of the evening raises a couple of points of particular interest. A doll dressed by a nurse, Nellie Rimmer of Oxford, as a territorial nursing sister, was bought by Harry Tate, the well-known musical comedian. Now, why should a nurse from Oxford be making a fundraising item for sale in Formby? And why was the nationally famous Harry Tate in Formby? Well, of course, Rimmer, I think Joan isn't here, is she? But Rimmer is a well-known family name. And so and, uh, Nellie Rimmer had travelled south to do her bit for the war. 
but retained her family links with St Peter's Church and, and Formby. But who invited Harry Tate, who was a household name, uh, stays of a, a mystery. And finally in this section on fundraising, and perhaps reflecting that America had, introduced, had entered the war in June 1918, an American tea was held by a Mrs Mathias at her house, Burwood, in Wicks Lane to raise funds. And a total of £12 was raised. And it's quite interesting that on, on one of the display boards there's also a poster advertising an American tea that was to be held for, in 1926. Now, unfortunately, neither of the report on this one or on that poster explain exactly what constitutes an American tea. One perhaps would think of um, coffee and donuts, I suppose, but whatever they were, I hope that they were more sedate than the infamous Boston Tea Party of 150 years earlier. So what about the defence of Formby? Well, in September 1914, it was reported that there was a project afoot to form a local company of the Territorial Reserves. That would be the Dad's Army, I suppose, of the day, with a target of 110 members. And the age range was to be between 19 and 35, and members had to be at least 5 foot 6 inches tall. And interestingly, the term of service was four years. Now, for a war that was supposed to be over by Christmas, uh, it seems that Formby had far more realistic, what I've told, crystal ball gazers. The Formby Guard established its headquarters at Formby Cricket Ground. The men drilled twice a week and practised on a new miniature rifle range created there. And a regular notice appeared each week in the Formby Times, providing next week's orders, including notices of parades and appropriate training and lectures and even, uh, I saw on some of them, about what to do in the case of a Zeppelin raid, actually, <coughs> a Zeppelin attack. And in September 1915, the Volunteer Guard had its pub first public parade in uniform with about 60 members. And that's a, that's a photo of them there <coughs> on that day in their, in their uniform, actually. As the war progressed, the Formby Volunteer Guard combined with other local volunteer groups and it ultimately became the, the part of the Lancashire Volunteer Regiment. Now, rattling on here, uh, on enlisting, it's obvious to state that as men enlisted, there would be repercussions relating to manpower, the level of manpower and labour in various industries and services. And we've got a few examples of areas that were affected by that on this slide. In May 1915, at a meeting in Preston, the Formby District Council agreed that if the government wanted council workers for munitions work, the council would keep their places open as it was unlikely they could be replaced anyway. The council spokesman spoke of this, that there would be the possibility of Formby going unscavenged and the streets becoming manure heaps. Remember, of course, horses were the main form of transport of the day. Well, the chairman of the meeting showed little sympathy for this and remarked that the government would no doubt think that the making of munitions more important than the scavenging of Formby. A question of priorities, isn't it? Uh, the effect of enlisting men in agriculture was a key factor in this area, and at a meeting um, in the county offices in Preston in uh, June of 1915, a committee was formed to organise women's labour. 
uh, obviously to, to replace men who had, uh, at that time, had volunteered and, and called up. Uh, now, the shortage in agricultural uh, <coughs> uh, labour was recognised nationally, and the Board of Agriculture listed holders of the following jobs should not be encouraged to enlist. And it's an interesting list of jobs, actually. Farm bailiff or foreman, a head carter or horseman or wagoner, a stockman or yardman, a shepherd and necessary milkers. And the military authorities have also been informed that sufficient engine drivers, blacksmiths and thatchers should be left as far as possible in every district. However, about a year later at a tribunal, Jonathan Formby was arguing that his thatcher be excluded from being called up. So by going on a year later, we're now into 1916, when of course conscription had been <coughs> introduced and uh, eligible people were, were called up. He was successful, although the call-up was delayed by a few months so that the Thatcher could complete urgent thatching. Another interesting case of an appeal against compulsory enlisting involved the rector of Sefton, who appealed for his gardener and butler to be excluded from enlisting. Unsuccessful, the gardener was exempted for two months and the butler for four months. But now, how things have changed. The rector then had a butler and a gardener, but now here in St Peter's, the vicar Anne, or probably more accurately her husband Ted, has to double up as butler and gardener. <coughs> but before, before 1916, that was when I said when enlisting became compulsory for those eligible, people termed recruiting canvassers would try to find volunteers to enlist. And an unsuccessful attempt was reported in the Formby Times. A I quote, a canvasser interviewed an eligible as far as his age was concerned, who he found to be seated at his work. The man was asked if he would enlist, but straight away declined. And on further being pressed for his reason, declared he could not possibly join much as he wished. Not satisfied, the canvasser proceeded to enlarge on the virtues of patriotism. Whereupon, greatly to his surprise, the man raised a wooden leg with the remark, how can I join with that? And before the canvasser recovered from the shock, the army candidate showed a second wooden leg to further demonstrate his inability to serve his country. Needless to say, the canvasser disappeared if I'd written that now, I think I'd ended that by saying, needless to say, the canvasser legged it. <laughs> and the, the, the other thing that isn't clear in the article as to whether this chap was an unfortunate double amputee or whether he perhaps was a local wooden leg maker who was using his wares to get rid of the, uh, the canvasser. And finally, two other uh, examples of enlisting um, on labour and how alternative arrangements were made. In July 1916, case, a case came before Formby Tribunal for the approval of women taxi drivers. And interestingly, a year later, it was reported, again in the Formby Times, that London was getting its first woman taxi drivers. So Formby, we were ahead of London by a year. That's something. And in March 1917, it was reported because Formby Picturedrome had been unable to obtain a skilled pianist, for, um, obviously for... There's a silent films, I suppose. The owner-manager bought a pianola piano, for which I quote, executive ability on the part of the instrument 
instrument, instrumentalist is not necessary. So there's, there's an example perhaps of uh, um, mechanisation taking over. So now I'd like to go on to another aspect, the law and examples of, of breaches of the law. With the country at war, there were obviously restrictions applied to day-to-day -day living, and these were often backed up by the law. At the start of the war, breaches of lighting regulations uh, that was requiring domestic blackouts seemed to have been a common cause of residents being summoned. But by July 1916, Superintendent Hodgson did comment that there had been an improvement in the observation of the lighting order in Formby. So it had taken two years to get that improvement. Maybe we were, maybe there were slow learners in Formby at the time. The chairman of the sessions warned that heavier fines may be needed to improve compliance and stating about the breaches, it may only be a little bit of carelessness, but little bits of carelessness won't do in wartime. There were several cases of cyclists riding with un, uh, unscreened acetylene front lights. And one case, of Fred Little Jr. Uh, was summoned for an unobscured acetylene lamp on his bicycle. However, however, it was stated that he had joined the army the previous day and the case was dismissed. That's one way, I suppose, of getting out of a, a fine. Um, failing to register your, your, your employees uh, was also a, a summonable offence. And there was a case where 50 farmers uh, were summoned um, in the Formby, Formby sessions for failing to register their sons as employees. Obviously, this was to register your employees so that they could be uh, reviewed and decided whether they would be conscripted or not. Some of the <coughs> excuses or the reasons the farmers gave were some said they couldn't read or write, others said they didn't pay their sons anything, so didn't consider them as an employee, and maybe the real reason was that they, um, they just didn't want to lose their sons in war um, and so failed to do that. But the thing that struck me about that was that I don't know how big an area formed these sessions covered, but there were 50 farmers. So you can just imagine going back then, how presumably how small farms were then compared to what they are today. Legislation was also introduced to register the movement and change of addresses of people and in September 1916 a number of Formby residents were summoned for failing to keep a register of lodgers in their house and homes and in most cases the lodgers were wives and children of soldiers at the camp. So again it seems 1916 it seems to be in a a year of quite an increase in activity uh, of the soldiers presumably being billeted and trained around here. We've had that example. We had the example of the billeting and the civil war that that was causing uh, in 1916. And also the Soldiers Institute was becoming crowded with, or formerly becoming crowded with khaki. So for some reasons, uh, it was, it, uh, there was a lot of increased activity. And a warning for, for Ted and Anne, even men of the cloth got charged the Reverend Robert Thomas Edwards was charged with entering the prohibited area of Formby. He was an American, and prior to coming to Formby, resided in Sheffield. He should have notified the registration officer uh, in Sheffield before leaving the district that he was coming to Formby to visit his son, who lived in Jubilee Road. He was charged under the Aliens Act. And possibly seen from today, one of the most bizarre cases brought under the Defence of the Realm Act was that against Richard Swift, a very appropriate surname, because he was summoned for carrying a carrier pigeon without a permit. 
But of course, in World War I and in World War II, carrier pigeons were quite an important form of communicate, method of communica <coughs> communication. And towards the end of the war, control on foodstuffs obviously became more important, and these were backed up by legislation. In, um, in December 1917, there were three prosecutions reported in Formby, all to do with the sale of potatoes in shops. Uh, the charges related to shopkeepers not keeping a true record of accounts, including the price they paid for the potatoes, the selling price, and also selling them above the maximum price. So again, obviously, from on the, on the legal side, there seem to have been laws um, about setting the maximum price that perhaps could be some of the basic foodstuffs um, were, were sold at. So that obviously, leads, uh, talking of potatoes, leads nicely on to uh, uh, the next topic I want to cover briefly, which is rationing. So as well as we know, Britain relies on its imports of food and, and guaranteeing supplies and sharing it out fairly is an obvious target for governments, especially during wartime. And the first food that became in short supply was meat. And in June 1915, the Formby Times reported that in common with other areas, Formby was feeling the shortage in meat supply and prices reached a high level. Voluntary rationing was introduced in February 1917. When I was doing this, I, I was quite surprised how late um, in, the, in the war um, rationing was introduced, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that, that's what it was, I suppose, you know, from what you see about the Second World War, where rationing, I think, was introduced a lot, a lot earlier. Um, this, this just surprised me. Um, but it wasn't introduced until February 1917, and the government food controller asked the nation, on its honour, to apply this approach with compulsion threatened if it was not carried out. And the suggestion was that people cut their, their meat purchases by 50%. And understandably, not everyone was happy. You can't please everybody all of the time. And the following case was reported. A woman, on asking for a leg of mutton, was told she could only have half a leg. She agreed, and the butcher cut the leg in two and sold her half a leg. She paid and the butcher turned away to the till to put the money away, as he would. On turning round again, he saw the customer attempting to buy the other half a leg from the butcher's associate, from the butcher's <laughs> assistant. Compulsory rationing wasn't introduced until 1918. And in February 1918, there was reference to, sh to sugar rationing, and a key point was raised by Mr Jonathan Formby. He asked the local food control committee to write to the Ministry of Food, pointing out that the custom of weighing the sugar ration, which include the paper wrapping, presumably a paper bag, deprived the customer of a certain proportion of his sugar ration, which is undesirable in the cases of children and those who were saving sugar for jam making. So it's interesting, a hundred years ago he was concerned that the children may not be getting enough sugar, whereas I think these days was more concerned that not only children, probably all of us, are actually having too much sugar. But there you go, what's 100 years between friends? Uh, the committee did contact the Ministry of Food and, replied, uh, and received a reply, stating that selling sugar by net weight presented practical difficulties which outweighed, now whether they intended the pun or not, I don't know, uh, outweighed any advantage to be derived from altering the present system. 
And of course, th this was in the days before electronic balances, you know, with the tear function that facilitates net, net weighing. Um, during 1918, meat, sugar, gas, electricity, coal were subject to rationing, um, and plans were being made for the rationing of jam, cheese and syrup to start towards the, the end of 1918. But in November, of course, the war, the war ended. I'm sure rationing uh, must, have, must have carried on for a while after that, actually. But uh, uh, this talk is only about the, during, the, during the war. Uh, so how did forming... Oh, that's right, sorry. There we go. The war is over, as I said. So how did Formby uh, celebrate the armistice? And I'll, I'll read again a quote from the Formby Times, what, what, what it said. Um, so the, the war was over, it was Monday, was um, November the 11th, so the first Formby Times was published at Saturday on the 16th edition. For, and I quote, Formby did not display any excessive jubilation over the news of the signing of the armistice. No, no official announcement was made and news filtered through the village on Monday morning, the 11th, particularly from the council offices on Church Road. So at that time, the council offices were, were in that building that is opposite the fire station, and, and underneath you've got Pancho's takeaway and Formby phones, phones and computing. Um, and the other thing that I find interesting that it says news filtered through the village. There's sort of a bit of a slowness there, whereas today, if the armistice were signed at 11 o'clock, by one minute past eleven, everybody would know by virtue of Facebook, email, Twitter. But anyway, they didn't have those things in those days. Um, anyway. On the afternoon of the armistice, the council offices closed and shops followed suit. In the evening, fireworks left over from bonfire night or kept in anticipation went to a let off and bonfires were lit possibly using the remains of those from the previous week, which was obviously bonfire night. <clears throat> Children marched with adult accompaniment from a tin can band led through the streets by a council member waving a Union Jack flag. Uh, but the editor of the former Times felt that the celebration most appropriate to the district was a Thanksgiving service, and this was duly arranged. It appears that a number of Thanksgiving services were held on Sunday the 17th of November at St Peter's Church, with one at 11.30 uh, by invitation only for council members, dignitaries and other prominent residents. The local police, volunteers, Boy Scouts and any discharged sol soldiers or sailors or any members of the forces on leave in the district were also invited. A civic procession led by members of the fire service made its way to the church that morning and another special service was held at 6.30pm, and all other churches held Thanksgiving services that day. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, for those of you that have seen a copy and have still got your copy of uh, the church's magazine from last month, March, uh, I know you won't be able to see it, but there there's a picture of the, uh, it says here, the interior of St Peter's decorated for the peace Thanksgiving. So as I say, the, the, the war ended on the 11th, as we know. There was a public meeting held on the 22nd of November um, to discuss proposals for the erection of a permanent memorial for the fallen heroes um, from Formby, a role of honour for those who'd served, um, a celebration of the peace, 
and a reception for the Formby soldiers and sailors on their return. And there was a bit of a continuous debate for a while as to whether the, the permanent memorial should be a cottage hospital or a memorial. And of course we know that the, the latter was selected and unveiled on November the 12th, 1922, at uh, Three Tons Lane. So briefly, what specific What specific reports were there about St Peter's in addition to the Thanksgiving services on Sunday the 17th of, um, of November that year? I've mentioned St Peter's Girls Friendly Society and their sale of work for raising funds for the troops. Other reports relate to a new oak and it was reported a holy table, uh, which presumably is the altar, and we think it's the altar back there, um, being placed in the church in memory of old boys of St Peter's Church, Sunday School and the choir who had given their lives during the war. Um, and a second report relates to a St Peter's dedication festival at which the collections were made at, a spe at special services held were in aid of the church extension fund. Now the report continues about land that had been given for this purpose by the Formby estate but owing to wartime conditions, it had not been possible to proceed with this work. So I think this particular extension fund relates to extending the churchyard and the burial ground, rather than, you can see on this form here, there's reference to a, another project or consideration about extending the, the physical um, building itself, which, which didn't happen, but there's more information there, I think. Uh, so leaving the form with time's result, um, reports about this, around the church we've got four plaques in memory of, of fallen soldiers and again there's more information about it on the, the board down there actually under title the fallen actually so there, these plaques are you can see them around the, around the nave of the church Captain Thomas um, Hoydy Roughton George Eric Thompson Archibald Findlay Maxwell, sorry it's not a very a bit reflective that photo and Norman Brownlee Sinclair Travis. Um, but one of the most poignant members of wartime is uh, it's the Battlefield Cross, or maybe the, I think it's also known as the Song Cross, standing proudly in the churchyard. This commemorates eight men of the 14th King's Liverpool Regiment who were killed in action between September and October 1916, and in whose memory a small cross was erected at the, I pronounce it, Vinci Advanced Dressing Cemetery in France in October 16, 1916. Of the eight names, two have a connection with Formby. One was former Test cricketer Kenneth Hutchings, more closely associated with the home county of Kent, but who moved to Formby after retiring from Test cricket. And looking around at the board over there, I think voices from the churchyard, which I think is on Saturday of this, this week, uh, we will have uh, somebody who will, uh, will be that very voice from Kenneth Hutchings. Um, and the second um, is Second Lieutenant Eric Thompson, whose plaque is one of those of the four around the church, actually, and whose family lived at 54 Freshfield Road, the home in later years of, of Nick Philpott, who I'm sure many of you know and who has uh, responsible and prepared this uh, uh, very comprehensive display around, around the nave of the church, actually, and who I'd also like to just uh, thank for the help that has given uh, me in preparing for this talk. How the cross, which was refurbished um, a few years ago, came to St Peter's Churchyard is unknown. But the best explanation is that the Thompson family either arranged for it to be sent 
or had it collected and, and brought to Formby. Now, another well-known uh, Formby family, the Garrett family, had two sons who were both killed in France, but their names were added to the family gravestone. Uh, <coughs> their two sons, Samuel John and Alfred, but the stonemason, you can see, put a comma between Samuel and John. So it suggests that they had three sons, but in actual fact, and at this church, this gravestone is in the churchyard, but they only had two sons and they were buried, buried in France. And finally, the churchyard has ten graves that meet the published criteria of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which honours the 1.7 million men and women who died in the armed forces of the British Empire in World Wars I and II. Of the ten, seven are soldiers who died, uh, who, who served in World War I um, and died afterwards from their injuries. And uh, they're, they're listed here, actually. Um, and there's more information about them, including a sort of brief potted history of their lives on the, um, on the church website. So uh, that's, that's re really it, actually. Uh, come to the end of the thing. I would uh, just remind you about the, uh, the book and three copies, copies there, actually, to take. And again, maybe a voluntary donation to the fund. The only thing I would ask about, about, about you, if you do take a copy of the book, is specifically with the um, cold weather, another cold weather coming on, and the increase in energy prices, please don't take it home and burn it for a source of heat. Um, I'd also quite happy to, to um, take any questions, actually. You will see that I'm slightly hard of hearing, so please, if you do ask a question, uh, speak slowly um, and loudly, and if I don't know the answer, I'll just pretend I haven't heard it anyway. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? I won't. I won't bite. You know. <laughs> okay. Does anybody have questions? Oh. Have you gone to get the mic? Somebody needs to
we had our own farms and, and agricultural um, agriculture in, in the UK, but I've no idea. No, so I'm afraid uh, I'll, I'll pretend I haven't heard the question actually. <laughs> Any other questions? No, mine's just um, a comment, really. Um, I, I was interested that you mentioned there was a football match involving the South Wales borderers. Yeah. Um, and m my grandfather, um, my maternal grandfather, came from Monmouthshire and was in the South Wales borderers. Um, but he was, he was wounded at Gallipoli, this is, as, I, as I understand it, and sent up to Altca camp which was acting as a hospital um, and at some point came into Formby and met my grandmother who lived in Altca <laughs> and, um, and also uh, uh, that um, you mentioned munitions work yes. um, my granny's sisters um, of whom there were three or four um, in Altca um, th they were very pleased to be sent into Liverpool to work in the munitions factory right. they, because they, they lived in a flat then in Waterloo and, and they met up with other people. And Alt if Formby was remote, Altca was even more remote. Uh, and yes, and they, yeah. they felt they were getting a bit of the high life. Actually, again, and talking about Alcar being remote, again, there's a, a, a reference in the book. Um, I can't remember exactly what it is now, but uh, um, basically I think a farmer was, uh, <coughs> was being questioned why he hadn't released his son or some employees. And um, you know, the, the, the tribunal said, we'll have to get some more, you, know, you just have to get them replaced. And his answer was something along the lines, well, Gosh, it's difficult. Who would want to come into our car? There isn't even a pub. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of interesting tales. Not that I'm part of this book at all. <laughs> Can I say thank you, Tony, for a very informative but also very entertaining talk. Thank and uh, we really do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Don't drop it. There's some 275th anniversary beer in there. It has been it has been brewed recently rather than 275 years ago, so it should be still okay. Um, just to say that the uh, information that Tony mentioned about the Commonwealth War Graves is on our website, but there are also paper copies on the table at the back if anybody is interested in the potted histories of those who have uh, were buried here in St Peter's in the Commonwealth War Graves. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.